morning. Merry Christmas. Pastor Steve mentioned we're in a special Advent Christmas sermon series. As you know, this is a church that lifts up expositional preaching. It is one of the marks of a healthy church. If you've heard of the Nine Marks ministry, you know that expositional preaching, preaching through books of the Bible, is the mark of a healthy church. And this church takes that seriously. But from time to time, it's nice to stop and do topical series, like at Easter or at Christmas. So here we are. It's the Christmas Advent uh, season, and we've elected to uh, work through loosely through a book called Hidden Christmas, The Surprising Truths Behind the Birth of Jesus Christ. It's published by Moody Publishers. John Anderson uh, mentioned it to you last week where he kicked off the sermon series, and I will continue on this week. And our hope is that through this sermon series, you will see some of the hidden truths, the forgotten truths, some of the things we just don't emphasize or think about much. A quick review. So last week, John Anderson kicked off this special Advent sermon series, and he gave a beautiful sermon from a portion of Isaiah chapter 9. It's a prophetic passage. Isaiah sees into the future, like really into the future, 700 years into the future. And if a typical generation is 25 years, that's about 28 generations into the future of a promise. And in fact, it's more than just a promise. It's a series of promises. John shared three of them with us last week. The promise of a breaking light, the promise of broken oppression, and the promise of an unbreakable kingdom. What are we talking about? We're talking about the Messiah. We're talking about Jesus. These were messianic prophecies recorded in the Old Testament. In fact, your Old Testament is filled with glimpses of Christ. Your entire Bible, start to finish, divinely authored by one author, points to Jesus. That should be your biblical theology. So we have a promise from Isaiah. That was last week's sermon. That was last week's Advent sermon. And what happened after the promise? Israel waited and waited and waited. 700 years, 28 generations, and then eventually the Messiah is born. The Messiah is born in the town of Bethlehem to Mary and to Joseph. Angels and shepherds rejoice in the fields outside Bethlehem, but someone else noticed more than angels, more than the shepherds, someone else noticed. It was the Magi, also called wise men in your uh, translations. From the east, they noticed a star. That's what we're going to talk about today. Matthew chapter 2. Uh, thank you, John, for reading the passage to us. Um, and if you're ready, this is an opportunity to examine the passage, interpret the passage, and apply the passage. Pastor Steve tells that, tells that to us all the time. We should be comfortable opening our Bibles, reading, examining, interpreting, and applying. So that's what we're going to do here this morning. Why? Because we believe the Bible is God-breathed, authoritative, necessary, timeless, inerrant, understandable, and sufficient. So we should not be afraid. If you believe that, if you truly believe that, let us do that. Let's walk through the passage and hopefully end with some application. So if you haven't already opened your Bibles, this is a great time to open your Bible or find a Bible. We will walk through the passage that John, Brother John, just read. Verse 1. 
Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, also called Magi, depending on your translation, from the east came to Jerusalem. Well, let us first ask the question, who was Herod? Your history books might call him Herod the Great. But your Bible also records historical events. It is also a history book. It does, not, it does not call him Herod the Great. It calls him simply Herod the King, for that is what he was. He was king of Judea. He was king of the Jews, but he wasn't Jewish. In fact, he was Roman. But his accomplishments, nonetheless, were remarkable. Um, what did he accomplish? He built massive construction projects, including cities, aqueducts, theaters, and expansions to the temple. He employed over a thousand masons, but he was a puppet king with a legitimacy problem, which is probably why he clung to power so tenaciously. He's known to have executed hundreds of individuals that threatened his kingdom, even one of his wives and some of his sons. So his legacy isn't really that great at all, and his desire to hold on to power led him to do evil, even genocide, which we'll read about shortly. In the meantime, verse 1 also tells us about the Magi, or wise men from the east. Well, who were they? Well, Magi is still the root of a word we use today called magic, but these weren't, these weren't cheap magic tricks by buskers on Water Street. They were learned. They were well-regarded. Yes, they were practitioners of magic, but also astrology, astronomy, and alchemy. And it says they were from the east, from Judea. Looking at a map today, we would call it Asia Minor. Perhaps they were from Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, or Iraq. We just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us precisely. But here's a key observation. Your Bible, this chapter, Matthew chapter 2, is the only place you will read about the wise men. What do we see? No mention that they were kings, no mention that there were three. So perhaps it's time to stop taking facts from Christmas carols. Things like We Three Kings of Orient are. A beautiful Christmas carol. And it, doesn't, it does contain truth, but it also contains fiction. No mention in your Bible that there were three. No mention that they were kings. And no mention that they were from the Orient. Nevertheless, let's move on. Verse 2 reveals that the Magi were following a star and that they had arrived in Jerusalem with a question, a simple question. They arrive and they ask the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Hang on, that's Herod's title. He is known to be king of the Jews, but they're not here to see him. In fact, they're just passing through, probably a large caravan. They would, there would have been servants, assistants, and guards so delete this picture in your head of three lonely kings walking through the desert. And if that wasn't bad enough, they weren't here to see Herod. They had seen a star. This is a direct threat against Herod's kingship. Well, in verse 3, when Herod, the king, heard of this, it says he was troubled. Some translations say disturbed. Well, it's interesting. What do we do when we receive disturbing or upsetting information? Well, there's always many options, and Herod at least had three options. He could have blown it off. He could have ignored it. That might have been the path of least resistance. He could have chosen to worship the king. After all, that's what the Magi said. They said they have come to worship the newborn king. Where is he? He could have chosen to do that, but he didn't. Neither of those options fit the MO of a tyrannical, power-holding, illegitimate king. 
No, he chooses to resist and he chooses to oppose. But first he needs more information. He calls together the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That's verse 4. He asks them, where? Where is Christ to be born? It's not a complicated question. He just wants to know where. And without hesitation, they respond. In Bethlehem, in Judea. They quote the minor prophet Micah. In fact, if you read Micah chapter 5, it doesn't just promise where the Messiah will be born. It also promises that he will be humble, that he will follow in the Davidic line, that he will bring restoration, that he will bring security, and that he will bring peace. Well, Herod needs just a bit more information. He wants to know when. Verse 7 says, he called the Magi secretly together and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Well, now he knows the where and now he knows the when. The Magi go on their way. They follow the star until it led them to Bethlehem. In verse 11, it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down, and they worshipped him. No stable, no manger. They came to the house of a child. Scholars believe Jesus was, in fact, probably about two years old at this point. Yes, if you've read the birth of Jesus in Luke's gospel, you read about a manger, you read about shepherds, you read about angels. That's all true about the birth of Jesus. But there were no wise men at the birth of Jesus. So if your nativity set at home includes wise men, my suggestion is to remove them from the nativity scene. Put them on the other side of the living room. And if someone asks, why are the wise men over there? Say, oh, don't you know? Haven't you read Matthew chapter 2? They weren't at the birth of Jesus. They came two years later. So I put them on this side of the living room, walking towards Bethlehem. (laughs) And when they got there, they fell down. Some translations say bowed down. They worshipped him. They were overjoyed. They They recognized his kingship, and they worshipped him. And yes, they brought gifts. Verse 11 says they offered gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We sang about that. Well, everyone knows what gold is. Some of us have some of it on us right now, maybe on your finger, maybe around your neck. But do you know what frankincense and myrrh is? Well, you can still buy them today. Essentially perfumes, incense, oils. We might put them in the category of essential oils. The point is they were valuable, they were meaningful, and they were given with sincerity. And we're not sure how long the Magi actually stayed, uh, stayed or visited, but having been warned in a dream, not to go back to Herod, which is what Herod wanted, they went home by a different route. Jumping down to verse 13, we read, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Well, whatever you think of Joseph, one thing we know for sure, he was obedient when he was spoken to by angels. He didn't roll over. He didn't go back to sleep. In fact, it says he got up immediately the same night before daybreak, packed up his family, and headed for Egypt. Yes, Jesus and his parents are about to become refugees, fleeing to save the life of their son. The angel was clear, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. So they flee to Egypt. We know the border to Egypt is at least 100 kilometers to the south at a minimum. It would be like walking St. John's to Whitburn. I don't know if any of you have a one-year-old child, but can you imagine doing that? 
And why are they doing this? Why would they do this? Because Herod is about to commit an atrocity. Verse 16 says, Then when Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were under the age of two. This was a tragedy that could have been avoided. Herod could have chosen to worship the Christ, but instead he chose to resist and he chose to oppose. It's the logical endpoint of his desire to resist the kingship of Jesus. But God's plans cannot be thwarted. Jumping down to verse 19, we read, But then, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take your child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Well, without delay, Joseph responds immediately. He gets up. He packs up the family, and they start the long walk back to Judea. And they settle in the district of Galilee in the town of Nazareth. So what are some of the hidden truths? If we're talking about this Christmas Advent series, some of the hidden truths, some of the forgotten truths, here's a quick list of some things we've just mentioned. Number one, Herod the Great was, in fact, not that great. Magi from the East were indeed wise, but there is no mention that there were three no mention that they were kings. Jesus' birth town, the town of Bethlehem itself, is actually foretold in the Old Testament. We know that Joseph is obedient. The family briefly becomes refugees. Herod does eventually die, and the family does eventually return to Judea. And most importantly, most importantly, the central character in this story is God. Not Herod, not Magi. God is the hero, and his plans cannot be thwarted. Now, taken as a whole, the Christmas story is a story in which glory collides with tragedy. Glory collides with tragedy. The Christmas story starts with glory, and it ends in tragedy. In Luke chapter 2, it begins with the announcement to shepherds who are keeping watch over their flocks by night. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and an angel of the Lord said, Do not be afraid, for I give you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And suddenly a multitude of angels break out in spontaneous praise. Angels do that, by the way. And they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth praise to men or peace to men on whom his favor rests. That's Luke chapter 2. It starts with glory. Fast forward to the end of the Christmas story and we see tragedy, unimaginable tragedy. Unimaginable glory meets unimaginable tragedy. We see a king so desperate to hang on to power that he kills all the boys under the age of two except for one. It's unimaginable horror. Glory colliding with tragedy. Uh, Celebration colliding with mourning. Life collided with death. Salvation collided with depravity. This is also the story of your Bible, isn't it? The glory of God's um, presence. The glory of God's promises, the glory of God's grace collide with the tragedy of sin. And where do we see the most violent collision in your Bible of glory and tragedy? It's at the cross. This time of year, we need to remember that your Christmas tree is not the tree of Christmas. Your Christmas tree is not the tree of Christmas. Christmas is about a tree of Calvary. On that tree, the glorious plan of God offering forgiveness, salvation, transformation, collided collided with unspeakable tragedy. The only perfect, sinless human being 
was murdered. Herod's slaughter depicts how much the earth needed grace, and the death of Jesus on the cross is the moment that grace was given. Because glory was willing to face tragedy, we have hope. So are there any applications for us today? How do we apply this to our lives? If, if our goal is to read the Bible, interpret the Bible, and apply the Bible, are there anything that we can apply to ourselves? And I have three applications. Of course, every sermon ends with application, does it not? Number one, I want to tell you that Herod had a heart problem, and so do we. Herod had a heart problem, and so do we. In Romans 8, 7 to 8, the Apostle Paul says that in its natural state, the human mind is ekthra, literally enmity or hatefulness toward God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. At the core, at the core of every human heart is the impulse that says, no one tells me what to do. And according to your Bible, the evil that we see in the world ultimately stems from self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and self-absorption of every human heart. Each of us wants the world to orbit around ourselves. We want to be in the center. And Timothy Keller, in this little book that we've been talking about, he says the following, in every heart, in every human heart, there is a little King Herod. That's an interesting word picture. <laughs> there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that feels threatened by anything that may compromise its omnipotence and sovereignty. Each of us wants to be the captain, captain of our own soul and the master of our own fate. This is one of the hidden truths of Christmas. This dark episode in Matthew chapter 2, in which we read about King Herod's violent lust for power, it actually points to something. It points to our natural resistance, even our hatred of the claims of God in our own lives. No, religion won't help us. We've all tried that, trying to tame God, seeking to put him in our debt, doing many, many things so that he will bless us in the ways that we want. Well, Paul makes it clear in Romans chapters 1 to 5, religious people are just as hostile to the sovereignty of God as the irreligious. They just find religious ways to hide it or express it. What we actually need, in fact, is heart surgery. Heart surgery. You cannot read the book of Proverbs without concluding that your body only goes where your heart has only gone, already gone. Your mouth only goes where your heart has already gone. Your eyes only go where your heart has already gone. In Proverbs chapter 4, there's a father, and he's speaking to his son. He says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. We can put it in modern language. We might say, son, if you do anything, guard your heart, because life comes from your heart. Well, when I was a child, I took things literally, especially around the age of 8 to 12. And I can tell you, if there's a 10-year-old version of me sitting here today, I would say, stop it. Stop it. Stop talking in riddles. Desires and motivations don't come from your heart. Your heart is just an organ that pumps blood around your body, <laughs> right? But as I got older, I started to be able to think a little more abstractly, a little more abstractly. I'm still working on it. The Bible describes your heart. Listen to what it says. It describes your heart as the center of your personhood, the center of your thoughts, the center of your desires. It's the center of your emotions. It's the center of your purposes. It's the center of your motivations. Proverbs teaches us about the foolish heart. 
the wise heart, the joyful heart, the grieving heart, the evil heart, the righteous heart, the tranquil heart, the understanding heart, the foolish heart, the just heart, the cheerful heart, the arrogant heart, the greedy heart, the angry heart, and the list goes on. Your life only goes, your life always lives under the control of your heart. That means lasting change in anyone's life always starts with the heart. It turns out the greatest problem in my life doesn't exist outside of me. It's not those less than perfect people and less than perfect things in my life. My greatest problem is inside of me. It's my own thoughts, motives, and idols of my heart. It's the tendency for me to put myself in the center instead of God. And so I need, and we need, to take comfort in the promise of a new covenant. It's a glorious promise, a beautiful promise recorded in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is what it says. I will give you a new heart, not a liver, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That promise, that promise from Ezekiel is fulfilled in Jesus. And if by the grace of Jesus, if by the grace of Jesus there isn't renewal of my heart, there isn't rescue of my heart, then that grace is not grace. I'm just faking it and I'm just another religious fool. But here's our comfort. God says, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know your, what, your background. I know your deepest, darkest, deepest, deepest, darkest secrets. I know how badly you've messed up if you repent and turn to God through Jesus and get a new heart. That, that's the promise from Ezekiel 36. Not only will God accept you and work in your life, but he will delight to work through you. And we will be able to pray like David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the, the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's from Psalm 51. So that's my first application. Herod had a heart problem, and so do we. But my second application is this. King, uh, Herod had a kingdom problem. Herod had a kingdom problem, and so do we. I said earlier that Herod was a tyrannical, power-holding, illegitimate king who chose to oppose Jesus. He, after all, was the king of the Jews. Then along came some wise men who said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? That was disturbing. He perceived it as a direct threat to his kingdom, and he took action to protect and defend that kingdom. Now, none of us are kings, but there's a lesson that applies. We are, by our nature, by design, kingdom-oriented people. I'm not sure if you knew that. We are kingdom-oriented people. It's the way we are designed. We, uh, we always live in the service to one of two kingdoms. Here's a quick example. Earlier this week, I found myself in the harsh, unexpected situation of having to use the bathroom quickly. And everyone was home at the time. So I ran to one bathroom and it was occupied. I ran to another bathroom and it was occupied. I ran to another bathroom and it was occupied. These are rich people problems. <laughs> oh, I was so aggravated. I was briefly raged. <laughs> <laughs> that I couldn't find a bathroom. And I love these people, but they were in my way, and I needed a throne to sit on, and there were no thrones to sit on. 
Oh, but there was a throne, and I was sitting on that throne. It was the throne. I was sitting on the throne of my own personal happiness agenda kingdom of self. Everything was about me at that moment. I had put myself in the center of the universe, and I wanted them out of my way. Now, the story ended well. I only had to wait about 30 seconds or so. And one of the bathrooms freed up, and everything worked out fine. That's pretty sad, though, isn't it? As humans, we hate waiting, whether it's in traffic, whether it's in a cashier's line, whether it's for a bathroom, or whether it's in a doctor's or dentist's waiting room. It's kind of funny that they actually call them waiting rooms. I think God created waiting rooms for our sanctification. The point is, Christians often find themselves struggling to defend their personal kingdoms of self. Like Herod, we have a kingdom problem. We get angry with one another when we don't get what we want. And this side of heaven, on this side of heaven, there's a constant war being fought for our hearts between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. Every argument, every argument we have with another person is the result of that deeper war. How does this happen? How do we end up in that kind of situation? Even as faithful Christians, we sometimes find ourselves often in that kind of situation. How does it happen? Paul David Tripp has an answer. He says, Christians do a pretty good job of salvation past. We can look at the cross and we can understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We have a pretty good idea of salvation past. And yes, we have a pretty good idea of salvation future. We can look forward and we can imagine and hope on the inheritance that we will receive. But we do a pretty terrible job of understanding salvation now, in the here and now. What are the benefits of my relationship with Jesus in the here and now? And if I don't understand what Christ gives me now in the present reality, listen to this, I will shop for it. I will shop for it horizontally, which is idolatrous and is dangerous for our souls. Paul David Tripp coined the term identity amnesia, and I know I've suffered from this. I know you've suffered from this. As Christians, we tend to forget who we are. As Christians, we tend to forget who we are. It's two things we tend to forget. It's very simple. We tend to forget the shocking presence of remaining sin in our lives, the shocking presence of remaining sin in our lives, and we also forget the grace that's been given to us through Jesus on the cross and what he accomplished. And when this happens, we can't live for what we've been called. We fall back into running our own little personal kingdoms depending on our own strength, and we lose sight of what God is doing. Let me ask you a question. How can we be part of what God is doing if we don't know what God is doing? How can we be part of what God is doing if, if we don't know what God is doing? I can even make it personal. How can, how can I be part? How can I be part of what God's doing if I don't know what God is doing? And I know we've all screamed in frustration, what in the world is God doing? Well, the Apostle Peter does give us a helpful answer. Part of the solution comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. It's a word picture. Peter says that our faith is being refined like gold. It's metallurgy 101. How do we get gold? The wise men had some after all. Well, it comes, it comes out of a hillside somewhere. It's mined. It's, it comes out like ore. And it's filled with imperfections, and it's filled with impurities. And those imperfections and those impurities rob it of its strength and rob it of its beauty. But if we add a catalytic agent, if we add heat, what gets produced is something even of greater beauty and value. It would not be grace 
for God to leave us in our or-like state. As young Christians know, in the grandeur of his grace, we will face something. And Peter doesn't say comfort, leisure, and pleasure. He uses three words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. We will face three things, three words. Write them down. Grief, trials, and tests. Grief, trials, and tests. That's what Peter says. Why? To take us where we do not want to go in order to produce in us what we could not produce on our own. Again, to take us where we do not want to go in order to produce in us what we cannot produce on our own. Much, much of the redemptive grace we receive now is actually for our refinement. We are being prepared. We are being prepared. We are being prepared. That's God's agenda. He is working massive, radical, personal heart change. Herod had a heart problem, and so do we. So if you've got difficulty, grief, or trials in your life right now, see it as redemptive grace. God is fighting for your heart. He is doing massive, radical, personal heart change in you. My final application, I just want to remind you that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy worthy of our affection, worthy of our worship, and at the very least, worthy of our attention. Can you at least give him that this morning? If I do nothing else, can I point you to Jesus? He is worthy. Consider the wise men for a moment. They weren't even Jews, but yet they were diligent enough to study the night sky and had noticed a new star had appeared. Really? Most of you know I have a family dog. His name is Rudy. He's just a mutt. He's nothing special. Um, but he's about 14 or 15, maybe even 16 years old. We've lost track. He's pretty old and moldy now, but we love him dearly. And he's the best family pet we've ever had. And every night I give him a walk in the dark, an old man with an old dog, one last time before bed. And without fail, I always look up and appreciate the stars if they're not covered with clouds, of course. And we do this every night. And I look at the stars, but I can honestly tell you, I would not notice if there was a new star <laughs> in the sky. But the Magi did. The Magi knew, and they understood that it was a sign. A light had dawned. A new king had been born, a Messiah. And what did they do next? Jesus is worthy. They packed up their caravan of servants, guides, and guards, and they started walking probably hundreds of kilometers we don't know, but we know it was far. Would you walk to Clarenville for Jesus? Would you walk to Gander for Jesus? Would you walk to St. Anthony for Jesus? Clearly the Magi knew that Jesus was worthy, worthy enough to make the walk. Scripture also says they brought gifts. I have no doubt they were of personal sacrifice. This wasn't $20 worth of essential oils from Bath and Body Works. They opened their treasures. Verse 10 says they opened their treasures and presented gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It says treasure. There's no other way to interpret this. Clearly the Magi knew Jesus was worthy, worthy enough to make the walk, and worthy enough to bring treasure. Finally, I want to remind you that they, when they got there, when they got to the house, not the manger, when they got to the house of Jesus, they bowed down and worshipped him. That's what scripture says. Herod chose not to. Herod could have, but he didn't. But clearly the Magi knew that Jesus was worthy, worthy enough to enter the house and worship him. Jesus was worthy enough to make the walk. He was worthy enough to bring treasure. He was worthy enough for them to worship him. 
all of this without ever witnessing the adult life, ministry, signs, death, or resurrection. But we've been given that grace. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't yet trusted in the work of Jesus on the cross, let me invite you to consider that Jesus is worthy. Receive the good news, the gospel. Repent, turn in faith, and step into the light. Let us pray. Father, thank you for being gracious with me this morning, gracious with these fine people, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for your word from Matthew chapter 2, that we can observe it, interpret it, read it, and apply it. And that is relevant to us today. And that we're reminded that your word is God-breathed, and it's authoritative, and it's necessary, and it's timeless, and it's inerrant, and it's understandable. And most importantly, it's sufficient sufficient for us today. Thank you for the grace that you've given us today. In your name I pray. Amen.